And now if you'll, okay, we're in Joshua 2, 1 to 7. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This is the word of the Lord. You, can, you guys can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Echo Church. I'm Pastor JD. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, see some, some friends here from other churches. Praise God for that. Good to see you guys. Um, we're doing our study this morning in Joshua. As you guys know, uh, last week was the first of a series that we're going to be getting and working through the entire school year together, working through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So I'm excited to be doing this. We're, we're on our way now. We're working through uh, these chapters together. And so what I want to ask this morning is that we could bow our heads in prayer, ask the Lord to meet us during this time, and then let's jump into the text together. Father, we ask you now for your presence. We know, God, that you are everywhere. We know that, as David says, where can I go from your presence? I can't go up. I can't go down and somehow leave your presence. However, however, you've also asked your people to call upon you and ask you to come and even invite you to come as a measure of worship in our hearts. And so now with hearts uh, aflame with worship after what we just sang, singing all glory be to Christ and, and, and singing, he will hold me fast and recognizing these truths about you. We now invite you to come in a way that it just enables us to hear your word that fills us with your Holy Spirit as we listen and as we think carefully about what it is that your word has to say to us in Joshua chapter two this morning. God, I pray that it would be more, I pray this for myself as I'm speaking this, that it would be more than an academic exercise, that it would be more than words on a page that we somehow now maybe understand a little bit better, but God, that it would be something that we receive, that we take with us outside of these four walls, that you would meet us and even change us this morning. I pray specifically for those that might be hearing my voice this morning that have not yet put their trust in you. I pray that they would see you as glorious and beautiful this morning. So God, meet us in every way. Meet us in a thousand ways that I don't even know how to pray for. But God, meet us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, this morning, we get to be in a story that many, many people, if you've been raised in the church, many people know this. This is the story of Rahab and the spies. If you have a children's Bible, this story is always in that children's Bible, right? You've got, you've got, you've got the, the idea of, of a woman. Sometimes they try to kind of 
make things a little nicer. Like they kind of clean the story up a little bit. She's an innkeeper, right? No, she's not an innkeeper. She is a prostitute. She may be an innkeeper as well, but she's also a prostitute. And these men from Israel come to her. And so we're going to talk about the, that what's going on there and what's happening in this interaction between the two. And it's going to reveal something to us about God and about who he is. So, I want to talk for a minute about where we're going with this particular sermon. God's kingdom, remember we're we're talking about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. That's been the theme that we're going to be working through these three books of the Bible. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And it's going to be a tale of two kingdoms and how these two kingdoms interact with one another. And the kingdom of God is what God is doing amongst God's people under his law in his land. That's God's kingdom. God is going to establish a kingdom with actual boundary markers called Israel. And at times, God's people are going to obey him and they're going to live under his rule and reign and they're going to sort of live as his kingdom. And at times, God's people are going to rebel against him. But at this particular point in our story, we have an obedient people of God. The Israelites are being obedient and they're listening to what God is telling them to do. And what God has just told them to do last week, if you were with us, is he says, I want you to cross over this Jordan and I want you to go into the land and you're going to, the first town you're going to meet is a town called Jericho and I want you to fight against it. I don't want you to destroy it. And that was the command that we, we looked at last week that was given to the people. So Joshua, now being faithful, being faithful to what God has called him to do, sends an advanced scouting team out ahead. In fact, I want to put up a, a map here um, for you guys to see. We'll get to the main point in just a second for you guys in the back. Uh, but I, I just want to put up a map here. I, I use a modern map. So some of those words on there are modern places. But I want you to notice over here, there's a little camp. And over there, there's a little castle city thing. And they got the Jordan River right in the middle. This is what we believe. This is where the people were camped. We're not exactly sure. We don't have all the archaeological evidence to know if they were if they were exactly in that spot, but we're pretty, we, we think so. And so about 14 miles away across the river, which is right in the middle, Jericho's dumping into the Dead Sea here. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, jo- uh, Jordan River is dumping in the Dead Sea. Right across the Jordan River is the city of ancient Jericho. And we do know where that is. And we have seen archaeological evidence of that city. So here are the two cities. Joshua is now obeying God and he is sending now spies out to this city. And these spies are going to have an interaction with Rahab. They're going to talk back and forth, and there's something that we are supposed to see out of this particular passage. And here's the main point if you're taking notes. Here's the main point if you're taking notes. Everyone knows the fear of God's power. But some seek and find his mercy. Okay? So there's going to be two particular groups that we are going to see in this story. We're going to see two responses, if you will to the fear of God. Everybody knows the fear of God. Some seek to find his mercy in the midst of that fear. And as we'll see, some don't, some don't. So Joshua has sent spies into the land to see the military strength of the city. He wants to know how many troops are there. How many men of fighting age might be coming out against me? He's doing the things that any military commander And a common place to go if you're a spy, by the way, is an inn or a tavern. 
You want to know where the people gather and they're sort of the, the, the lips are loose, right? And you can, they can, they sit there and they maybe get a little bit of alcohol in their system. And then the words just start flying about, you know, what's going on and how people feel and all those things like that. So you go, you go to an inn, you go to a tavern, you go to a place where people gather and no doubt that's where the spies went. They went to Rahab's place, right? Rahab was most likely an innkeeper, but she was more than that. It wasn't the only source of income for her, as we might say. And so Rahab now sort of takes these men in, and that's what we're seeing here in our story. And the surprising twist has already occurred in our story. Right here in these first seven verses, you expect Rahab to be just like everybody else in Jericho and give these men up, but she doesn't. She doesn't. And she, she decides rather to hide them from the king of Jericho and from the soldiers that the king has now sent. And that's meant to be shocking to us. We're supposed to read that and go, whoa, there's something here. There's a twist to this story. And the question is this, that we're supposed to ask as we read it. Why would she do something like this for these men that she had never met? Why would she do this? What is, what is in it for her? What is it that she knows? What is it that she is thinking? And so with that idea in mind and with the story set up, I want you now to look with me to Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Let's read verses 8 through 11 to, um, together. I'll read it and you guys can follow along. Joshua 2, 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Powerful words coming from a woman that does not even live in Israel. She does not dwell with God's people. And here, yet, there is knowledge about God and who he is. Here's point number one if you're taking notes. Both Rahab and the city of Jericho feared God's power. Both Rahab and the city of Jericho feared God's power. Notice in the verses that I just read there, the words we and us. Do you see that there? For instance, the fear of you has fallen upon us. Verse nine, all of us, everyone in this city fears you. It's the fear has fallen upon us for we have heard. That's everyone in the city. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And as soon as we heard it, verse 11, our hearts melted. Do you see the collective use of language there? This is something that everyone in the city knew. This was not a secret. Not only did they, did they know that Israel was across the river, they knew Israel's history. They knew the last 40 years of what God had done. When God splits the Red Sea and lets a people walk through it, and then he collapses it again on the Egyptians, people hear about that. When the Israelites wipe out two powerful nations, 
led by two powerful kings, Sihon and Og, as we talked about last week, that was on the other side of the Jordan River, on the Jordan side nowadays of the Jordan River. People hear, people talk. The gossip in the land of Canaan moves quickly. So there was an understanding here that they knew what God had done. And what did it say? What was the result of that? There was a fear that had fallen upon the people. God is powerful and he has done amazing things in the midst of the Israelites. That's, that's the message so far. And everybody has gotten that message. And they experience fear because of it. But for the citizens of Jericho, that is where the thought process stops. It stops at fear. The Israelite God is here. He's really powerful. Maybe he's even more powerful than our gods of our city. We're doomed. And that's it. That's where it stops. But for Rahab, there's more. There's another step of thought. There's another piece of logic that she then adds to the equation, if you will. She goes further in her thinking. She knew that God had given this land to his people. She says that. This land that we dwell in, that's the land that your God is going to give to you. Not maybe might give to you, is going to give to you. She says exactly that in verse 9. And she also knows that God is not just a tribal God of Israel. Do you notice that? Do you notice what she says about God? This is very, very significant. If you know anything about an ancient Near East culture, here's how it usually goes. It's our God versus your God. And when we battle, we're going to battle here on earth, but really it's our God's fighting. And if we beat you, that means our God is stronger than you, but it's all tribal. It's all our God of this little part of the territory here versus your God, which sort of dwells and his home is over here. Everything was sort of tribal, but listen to what she says again at the very, very end of verse 11. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She is saying something here that is shocking to an ancient Near East context of tribal gods. She is saying, your God reigns over all, and I know it. I'm aware of this. Now, it's what she does with that knowledge that we are most interested in. Let's see it in the next few verses. Verses 12 and 13. You guys can look along with me as I read. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you all brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Here's point number two, if you're taking notes. Rahab believes God's faithfulness and looks for a way out from his wrath. Rahab believes God's faithfulness. She believes God's words. And she looks for a way out from his wrath. And as we're going to notice, that's something that the rest of the city of Jericho never thinks to do. Their thought process stopped at fear. Her thought process goes on to, if he really is God, if he really does reign, if he really is powerful, maybe, just maybe, he's also good. Just maybe he's also merciful. And she said, it's worth finding out. 
it's worth asking these Israelite men if not only they, but if their God would spare me in this particular moment. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, far removed from this story. And when this story was written, the author of Hebrews tells us something about Rahab. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. He says, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. There's a couple of things I want you to notice here about how a New Testament author later on looks back on this story and is teaching the people maybe in his church of this particular story. Here's what he says. He says she did it by faith, first of all. Do you notice that? By faith, Rahab. What does that mean? That means that what arose in her and everybody else was fearing was not just fear. There was fear. Not just fear, but fear gave room to faith. She believed that God was really going to do it. She said, yes, he is. Yes, he has the power to do it. And man, I want to believe. I want to trust in this God, not just as an enemy of him, but as somebody who's actually under him. By faith, she did it. So she had faith. But I want you to notice something else it says about her here. This is, a, this is theology that we're getting from the Holy Spirit that the story itself doesn't even say to us exactly. It says that Rahab was obedient. Okay, or, well, what she technically says is she's not disobedient. You, you do the logic. That means she is obedient, right? Rahab was obedient, what on earth does that mean? How, obedient to what? Usually in terms of obedience, we think of, well, a command comes to us, right? Here's a command and I'm going to choose then once the command comes to me to either obey or to disobey. Was there a command that came to Rahab? And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say that the rest of the people in Jericho were disobedient. Well, again, same logic, to be disobedient, doesn't a command have to come that you go, nope, don't want to do it. That's what makes you disobedient. I don't say to my children that they are disobedient just, just because. I will say to them they are disobedient if I have asked them to do something that they then don't do. Where was the command? Well, it's there. And I think the author of Hebrews sees it. And I don't think it's as simple as a, of the voice of God coming down to the city of Jericho. But I think the author of Hebrews sees a command that has come from God here. I'm going to say something that kind of has a little bit of a philosophical tinge to it. So bear with me for a minute. Let's just put on our philosophy hats for just a minute. I think this is true. Any knowledge about God presents a choice to the one who has that knowledge. You're like, whoa, that's deep, right? I, I want to try to explain that. I want to try to explain that. If you have knowledge about God, you also have a choice of whether to respond to that knowledge or not. Adam was up here reading Romans chapter one or referencing Romans chapter one in his prayer. When we, we do a prayer of confession and Adam was doing that here. And he said, God, everybody knows you. We are without excuse. Every human being on the planet knows something about you. And therefore Romans one says they are without excuse 
because they have this knowledge about you. The people of Jericho had that knowledge. The people of Jericho had a lot of knowledge, actually. Do you realize that? The people of Jericho had a lot of knowledge about what this God had been doing in the midst of his people. The miracles that this God had been working for 40 years, he had been working miracles amongst his people. They had a lot of knowledge. And here's my point. That knowledge requires a choice. You don't just sit there with that knowledge and then just let that know. Okay, I'm going to file that away. Nope, it requires a response. God was looking for a response, not just from the city of Jericho, by the way, but from every people group that we are going to see this from this point forward in the book of Joshua, a response that says, I believe that. I believe that about that God. I believe that he is really who he says he is. And so rather than fight against his people, I'm gonna seek to find a way because maybe, just maybe, this God is merciful. Just maybe this God will show me mercy, even though I find myself an enemy of him. Now, Rahab, she does exactly this. She seeks through these men that have come to her to kind of make a deal, right? Now, the theology is not pristine here. Her answer is not theologically accurate in the deepest sense. But I think what we find here through this story is the heart of someone that wants to get out from under the wrath of God and wants to be in God's blessing, who wants to be in God's favor. She's seeking out a way out from the destruction that is coming to her city, and she knows it's coming. So she does it through this bartering system, right? And we're like, well, that's not how it works. That's not what's going on. By the way, side note, side note, when we have brand new Christians who come to know the Lord, guess what? They don't know biblical language. They don't know how things are said in the church. And so they use a lot of words and we're like, that's weird. That's not how we talk here. It doesn't, there's often a heart behind somebody who is desiring in the depths of their heart to believe the Lord and to, and to trust in him even before they know the words of the theology of what it is that they're doing. And so Christians, be careful when we judge somebody based upon their words, especially when they're new in the faith, when it may very well be that there is, th- that, that there is a true and living faith inside of them, but they just haven't learned the Bible words yet. And are the Bible words good? Yeah, the Bible words are good. I love using Bible words to try to explain things. But people, people need to read the Bible to know the Bible words. They need to spend time with Christians and be discipled to know the words like regeneration and sanctification and justification and all these shuns that we throw out. And, and people are like, what are you talking about, right? People that, that, that are new to the church or haven't been raised in the church. But oftentimes there is this deep sense of, I want the Lord. I want him in my life. I want to say yes to him. I want to, I know his power and I want to be out from under his wrath. How can I do that? And that heart, she's bartering. Hey, okay, guys, I'm going to spare your life. Now you spare mine, right? Quid pro quo. We're going we're gonna to work out a little deal here. But there was a desire to be out from under God's wrath. So they reach an agreement men and her. She will tell no one in Jericho. And by the way, this is verses 14 to 21. So I'm going to cover these verses just right here by talking about them. 
She will tell no one in Jericho that these men were there. Well, she's going to tell them, but she's going to tell them that they left early. She's going to help them escape. They, in turn, what they're going to do is they're going to go back to Joshua and they're going to tell Joshua about her and they will spare her and her family with the rest. Um, when the rest of Jericho is being judged by God and destroyed, they're going to spare her and her family. And the way that she's going to show who was with her family is that just outside of her house on her doorway, she's going to tie a scarlet cord actually to the window outside of her house. Joshua and, and, and the army are going to spare the house that has the scarlet cord. Anyone inside that house is spared. Everyone outside of that house will be killed. That's the plan. And that's the plan that she works out with them. She's going to identify her house by this scarlet cord. Now, a lot of sermons have been preached on this scarlet cord. Okay, if you've been in church for a little while, you probably heard lots of sermons because why? Because it's red in color. That's interesting. It's a red cord. It's like a cord is a rope, basically. It's a red rope. And, and, and the way it would have been hung, some sermons, some, some preachers have said, the way it would have been hung would, would look like trickling blood. Trickling blood falling down from the window, you know, and, and then, then they would jump from there and they would go right to Jesus and they say, see, see, Jesus is like that scarlet cord, right? And there's a picture here that's emerging. And, and, and I say, yes, but let's hold off for a sec. I think there's something that the Lord is pointing us to, that the Holy Spirit is pointing us to, but let's not be so quick to make the jump right to Jesus. Because I think these men, when they had the idea of, hey, tie the scarlet cord up on your window or on your door, that there was something else they were thinking about first. And then we'll get to Jesus in just a second. If you have Bibles open, you can turn to Exodus chapter 12. And I want to talk about the Passover for a minute. I want to talk about the story of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, there is a really crazy story going on where we are in the middle of the plagues. You guys know the plagues, the 10 plagues that fell upon Egypt. And we are, we are, we are about to face the which was the death of the firstborn children in every single family. That was the final plague that was falling upon Egypt because Pharaoh had refused to do what God had asked him to do, which was to let the people of Israel go free. And he had refused and refused and refused. And finally, we get to this final plague where the firstborn sons of every single family are going to die. Except that Israel was told that there's a way out. It was going to include Israel unless, unless they did exactly what God commanded them to do. What did God command them to do? It's found in Exodus 12, verses 5 through 7. You're going to take a lamb, Israel, before we read. You're going to take a lamb from your flock, and you're going to bring it into your home on the 10th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, you're going to kill it. Here's what he says. Your lamb that you use is, shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses 
in which they eat it. So in case you're not familiar with this story, they're going to kill this lamb as a sacrifice. They're also going to eat the lamb as a family, but they're going to kill this lamb as a sacrifice. They're going to take its blood and they're going to paint its blood up on the doorway and on the lentil, which is the, the, the crossbar of the doorway up above. And here's why they're going to do this. Verses 12 through 13. For I will pass through the land, the Lord says, of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what's the point here? You paint that blood of that lamb on your doorway. And when God by his spirit comes to that particular house, he will pass it over and not judge those inside. And this is the way Israel was to avert the judgment that was coming their way. And that's why it's called the Passover that God is going to pass over in judgment those who have done and been obedient and killed the lamb exactly as they were to, to do so. So before we jump from Rahab and we jump straight to Jesus, the first thing we're going to jump to is the Passover that had already happened in Israel at that point. They knew that this was the case. And so as these men are coming up with their idea, well, how do we, how do we demonstrate that Rahab is one that is to be passed over by God's judgment? I know, let's take something red. We don't have a lamb around. Let's take something red and let's put that on the, not the door, the window. I know it's close. It's close, right? Put it on the window. And as the army comes to bring God's judgment upon the entire city, the army will pass over that house. There's a picture of Passover happening here. And Rahab will be spared just as the families of Israel were spared when the spirit of God was coming to bring judgment upon each and every one of those houses. Now, now that we're at the Passover, can we make a jump to Jesus? Oh my goodness, you guys. Jesus died on the night when the lambs were being killed. The Passover lambs that they were still celebrating every single year. He died on the night that the lambs were being killed. It was to be a blameless, spotless lamb. Did you notice that? It wasn't to have any deformities. And that's a picture of the perfect spotlessness of Christ, right? It was to be a male. That normally didn't matter in sacrifice, but all of a sudden it mattered with the Passover. A male lamb, speaking of a future male savior who would come, right? You were not to break its bones while eating it. That, I didn't read that. That's Exodus 12, 46. You weren't to break its bones. That's not a normal thing you do when you're, when you're you know, making lamb, but don't break its bones. That's important. Jesus's bones were not broken. The, it, w the New Testament specifically tells us about that. Jesus, he died on the night when the lambs were to be slaughtered all over Israel for the Passover. So I think it's best to point from this story back to the Passover and then from the Passover to Jesus. And I think that's the, I think that's the proper way to do it as we're studying scripture together. 
what does Joshua 2.22 say? It says that the spies departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Now, to understand why that's significant, let's look for a minute at a map again. We can just pull up a map here of Israel. Well, where are they going to run back to? Well, they're going to run back to their camp, aren't they? So, so um, the, all the pursuers, the, the, the men of Jericho, they go, and they go as far as the fords. And that just means they go as far basically as this, this region of the Jordan River, but they don't dare to cross anymore. Why? Because they're going to run into Israelites if they cross that river. So they go up to that point, but then, then Rahab sends the spies to the hills. If you look over there on the left, that green arrow, there's hills over there on the far left side of the map. She sends them to the hills. She says, go stay there for three days and just hide up there in the hills. And if you've ever been to that region of Israel, it is just these like, it's, it's something called a wadi. If you guys have ever seen it, it's like these dry riverbeds and they make, there's, there's even caves up there. There's hills up there. This is not far from where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in these caves. There's caves everywhere up there. And to just go hide up there in the hills, nobody will find you. This is not far. It's just a little bit north from where David hid from Saul. He was just a little bit south near the Dead Sea where David would hide from Saul. And Saul couldn't find him for years. So, that, so she says, go hide up in the hills. They're going to be perfect for you to hide for three days and then take a roundabout way to get back to your camp. So she's helping these men out. And then those men come back to Joshua. And what do they say to Joshua at the end of our chapter? Joshua 2, verse 24. And these men, these spies, they said to Joshua, truly, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now that's true. Everyone, everyone's heart melted away because of these because of the Israelite army and because of their God. But what the text doesn't tell us is that these men also told Joshua about a woman whose fear led her to look for a way out from God's wrath. The story of Rahab is about someone who feels the fear of the Lord. And yet rather than leaving it there, turns to trust in him and to hope that he is maybe by chance a merciful God that will allow for a way out. So as we apply this text, let's think about this for a minute. Fear is an interesting concept in the Bible. If you've been with us at Echo Church, we've, we've actually talked specifically about the topic of fear back when we were in the book of Proverbs. Some of you guys remember Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we, we, we think that's weird. Fear, that's a strange thing. I'm not used to that word fear as being so important. But in the Bible, it is incredibly important, this concept of fearing God. God's people, for instance, are commanded in the book of Deuteronomy to hear with fear, and then they will obey. Some of you guys remember we've talked about that as well. You hear the word of God, you fear God and who he is. That's respect, and it, and it doesn't mean a slavish, I'm, I'm trying to run away from him. It means I'm going to fear that he is really truly who he says he is, and I'm going to respect that he is who he is, and I'm going to put my trust in him, and then what's going to happen? You're going to obey. You hear with fear, and you obey. That's the process of the book of Deuteronomy. So certainly Rahab responded in fear when she asked the spies to spare her. She was afraid. 
She feared who God really was. She feared that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. And she asked the spies to spare her. However, others fear God and at the same time feel no desire to come to him for mercy. There are others in this world. In fact, there are most people in this world, sadly, that will fear God and will never come to him to seek mercy. The people of Jericho in our story this morning are going to fight against the God of Israel, even though they know about his power. Can you just grasp for a minute the irrationality of that idea? I know the fear of God. I'm trembling over God and who he is and his power. But when it comes time to fight, I'm going to be on the army that's fighting against him. If that seems irrational to you, welcome to sin. Welcome to sin in my life and your life as well, by the way. It's always irrational when you think about it from a certain perspective. But one of the most intense examples of this is found actually in the book of Revelation. We're going to go to the book of Revelation for a minute. I want to look at Revelation chapter 16 at one of the, just the gnarliest parts of Revelation that you can find right here. It's just, it's, it's intense and, and there's a lot of really intense stuff going on here. And by the way, this isn't a study on Revelation. So there's gonna be a lot of questions you have that I'm just not gonna cover this morning. However, I want you to see the book of Revelation chapter 16, and we're gonna read it, verses eight through 14. And I want you to notice, and then that, that fear leads ultimately to becoming enemies of God rather than fear leading to seek God's mercy. Watch what happens with fear in the book of Revelation here. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Now, if you missed 75% of what's going on there because of just, we haven't covered revelation, it's understandable, but here's what I want you to know. God is pouring out incredible uh, destruction upon the earth and the people who God is pouring it out on know that it is God who is doing it. Do you see there in the text? They know, and they actually curse God because of it. But what is the refrain that we hear happen over and over and over again? They did not repent of their deeds. And then where do we find them at the end? The very end of the, of the passage, where do we find them? As these demonics go forth and they're gathering this army to fight against the Lord, it is the very people 
that did not repent of their deeds, that now joined the army against the Lord to fight him. It's a very similar picture that we see going on here amongst the city of Jericho. They know of God's power. They know who he is in a way, just as Romans 1 says all of us do. And yet on that day, when it was come time to choose, when it was come time, when it came time to either believe and trust in God and seek his mercy or find yourself arrayed in battle against him, these men of Jericho were like the people in Revelation. They stood against God. And there was judgment that came because of it. There is a kind of person that fears God and yet cares nothing for him. They would rather die and go to hell than worship him. The people of Jericho were not much different. They had all the information they needed to seek mercy while mercy was to be found. And this reminds us, friends, that the gospel is not simply a matter of information. As we go out from these four walls, it is not simply about dispensing information to people that don't have it so that when they finally receive it, oh, I didn't know that. Now that I know that I'm going to trust in the Lord. It's a hard issue. It's a miracle because we were born friends. We were born in a state of distance from God. We were born enemies of God. I quote this all the time. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, while we were yet sinners and later on says, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. What does that make us? As we're born, as we come into this world, we come into this world, enemies of God, God with hearts that say, no, I don't care what I see about you, God. I don't care that I can look up at the mountains and see your faithfulness. I don't care that I can look up at the sky and see the power and the grandeur of your majesty. My heart says no. And what Romans 1 tells us is especially sinister that happens inside the heart of us. It says that we suppress the truth which means we know the truth and then we set the truth down lower in our hearts, back in the abyss of the places of our hearts where it never, ever, ever bubbles up with any kind of desire to turn to the Lord and to trust in him. Just keep it down there and you stay in there and you shut up. That's essentially what suppression is. Don't ever speak to me, conscience. Don't ever tell me about the truth of who God is. You stay quiet because Romans 1 is so scathing because it tells us that like the men of Jericho, we have enough information about God. But we as human beings simply choose to disobey him. And ultimately, many, many human beings will find themselves arrayed against him. But then there is one out of that whole city. There is one, there is Rahab. And she says, maybe just maybe this God is a good God. In addition to a powerful God, maybe just maybe he will show me mercy. And the way she does that was not perfect. We already talked about that. But there is a heart behind Rahab that is reaching out to God saying, God, would you, maybe, could you accept me as your own? Out of the kingdom of your enemies, out of the kingdom of man, which are always arrayed against God, and into your kingdom. God, would you, maybe, could you 
and her plea for mercy is heard. And God in his providence sees fit that Joshua and the army ultimately spare her and she becomes part of Israel. You know how we know that? You know how we know that? She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. She's one of his great, 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 great grandmothers. She comes into Israel. She marries in Israel. She's a, she was a prostitute. There's a redemption that takes place. She marries within the people of God. She becomes part of the people of God. And we will see Rahab in heaven. She put her trust in the Lord as an Old Testament saint. And many of us in this room, if you've put your trust in Jesus, are like her. At some point in your life, you came to know that God really is who he says he is. He really is powerful. He really is holy. I really don't measure up to that level of holiness. And then we thought at some point, by God's grace, because God gave us this thought, by the way, then we thought, maybe there's a way out. Maybe I could come to this God with humility and in a sense on my knees, so to speak, and come to him and ask, would you maybe show mercy on me? And here's what I can tell you, friends. If you're on the fence about that, God always 100% grants that true request. He is a merciful God. He is a God that will, for those who come to him in faith, he will not turn away anyone. He will not leave or forsake anyone that truly comes to him. Jesus will tell us in the New Testament, knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you shall find. You shall find it when you seek it. But seek it with all your heart. So friends, this is a, there's, there's two responses here to God. One fears and turns away and becomes an enemy. And the other fears and turns to him and seeks his mercy. And just like Rahab, just like the city of Jericho, thousands of years ago, we find ourselves in that same place. And how does that mercy come? It's even clearer now than it was then. It comes to the person of Jesus Christ. God showed his mercy to us. He showed his love to us in a demonstrable act to say, do you see what I have done now? I've taken my son and I've given my son and he died upon a cross on this earth that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a call to the world. That is a call to the world to come. And my pleading with you is if you're hearing my voice, that you would come, that you would be one of those that says, I want out from that wrath. I want to be in that mercy. And the Bible is very clear. There is only one way and it is Jesus Christ. It is faith in him that allows us to be out from under the wrath of God and in to the people of God. It's because of Christ. It's because of what he did. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask God that you would meet us, especially with your spirit right now to be convicting and even changing and regenerating hearts. Whether that's this morning or whether that's someone somehow who finds this message later